before we dive into the message, let's seek the Lord's guidance through prayer. Lord, we seek you. As the psalmist says, open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. And Lord, here on this side of the cross, Lord, we know that this is Jesus that this speaks of. And Lord, we have nothing outside of him. There is no holy city except through the gate of Jesus Christ, our shepherd, our keeper, our sustainer. And Lord, now I I pray that you would send your spirit upon us to, to do a profound work in our hearts, to show us this Jesus, so that we may worship him, so that we, we may shout out thankfulness to him, gratefulness to him for coming into our scene and bringing us something that we could never go and get anywhere on our own. He has become our righteousness. And Lord, we thank you for doing this miracle, for by your mercy, though you had no reason to show us mercy, there was no need for you to show us mercy. You didn't need to save us. You don't owe us anything. But yet you came and you died for us so that we might be able to walk with you, so that you could abide with us and we with you. And there is no abiding aside from Christ and the Spirit that you have sent. And I pray, Lord, that as we seek Christ, the Spirit would show us the way, the way of Christ in this eye that you have given us through quickening our spirits within us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're taking a, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be taking a little uh, break from Matthew. And we're going to be looking at this great passion of Christ as he was led to the slaughter, as he became our righteousness. And today, does anybody know what today is? Palm Sunday. Sunday. So we're going to be talking about what exactly happened a couple thousand years ago, this very Sunday, at least as we observe it. To give a little background here, at this point in Jesus' ministry, when we come into chapter 12, uh, Jesus has actually been hiding out for a little while. He's been hiding out. It's not really something we normally think about Jesus as somebody who's going to go hide somewhere, as though he were afraid of somebody. But at this point, he has been hiding out in a place called Ephraim, um, because the Jewish leaders were, were looking to put Jesus to death. And... That is the reason Jesus came, is it not? To be put to death. But Jesus knew that the timing wasn't right exactly. The situation wasn't right. So he is going to remove himself from the public scene for a little while. And then come into the scene again when the time is right. Jesus had been taking over the power that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had thought that they had over the people. Uh, Through his bold teaching and his miracles, he was turning the hearts of the people to himself. And the religious leaders didn't like that. They saw themselves as the shepherds of the people, 
Jesus was not the shepherd of the people. He claimed to be this Messiah that the, that the Old Testament talked about. And to them, that was blasphemy. How could this man be a proper rabbi, a proper shepherd in Israel, when he was constantly proclaiming blasphemies? And now, just before we come into this Palm Sunday event, the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, right before this, right before Jesus hides out for a little while, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Something no teacher outside of Elijah has ever done before. No rabbi over for hundreds of years since Elijah has raised a person from the dead. And now here Jesus does this. If there is any other proof that the, um, that the inquisitive mind needed that this was the Messiah come from God, would it not be that he raised a man from the dead? So now the Pharisees, yeah, the Pharisees already hated him, but now they come to the point where they have to put a stop to this man. He is turning the nation upside down. Now, after raising a man from the dead, what are they supposed to do? None of them can do that. What are they supposed to do to turn the people back to their own teaching, to their teaching from the law? And Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, just to step back into chapter 11 real quick, he's not, in order to deal with this Jesus, he doesn't even know what he's saying when he speaks this in verse 48. Through 51, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, If we let him alone like this, talking about Jesus, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So Caiaphas was concerned about the nation. Jesus was causing an uproar among the people. So Caiaphas decides to play the, to play the politician card. And let's see what he says here. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, like I said, Caiaphas himself is trying to be a politician. He's trying to say, we've got to put this man to death. I know our law is against murder, especially the, the unjust conviction of a man who has done nothing worthy of death. But Caiaphas, playing the politician, trying to keep the peace among the people, he makes a judgment call. And he says it's better that this one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. And in verse 51, you see a little commentary on this from John. He said, now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. But then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Now Caiaphas was, he was looking out for the peace of the people. And he thought that he would bring the people peace by killing this man who's causing an uproar and bringing the people back into submission of the law that he and the Pharisees were promoting. That's going to bring peace to our nation. That's going to keep the Romans from coming and, and quenching the uproar, by destroying lives. That's what they would do. That's how they took care of 
riots and uproars among the people. They came in prison. They killed people. Caiaphas, he, he cared about the people. He didn't want that to happen. So he says, it's better that this Jesus would die for the whole nation than that the whole nation should perish under the hands of the Romans. And as it is written here, Caiaphas wasn't saying this of his own authority. But similar to, remember the story of Balaam, who was hired to speak out against the nation of Israel, to curse them. Just like Balaam, who had no power over his own words, but could only bless the nation. Here Caiaphas, not really knowing what it is that he was implying or prophesying, he didn't even know that he was prophesying, I I suspect. But here he says what's about to happen. He says, even though Caiaphas was trying to bring peace to the people himself through this judgment call, he was really prophesying about how peace would come to the nation. How peace would come between the nation, the world, and God. It wasn't about the nation and the Romans. It was about the people and God. That's the peace that Jesus came to bring Caiaphas wanted to to quench this upheaval, but he did not know that the upheaval was just now beginning. It had just now started. And even when Jesus was put to death, it would not end. For the Lord was in this. And now in chapter 12, we begin to see how the rest of this upheaval plays out. Jesus arises from the shadows and shows up in Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover season when the population in the city of Jerusalem would be at its highest for the whole year. This was one of the most famous festivals that Jews would unite in the holy city Jerusalem to worship God, to observe the Passover, to have this feast, to cleanse themselves for worship. Jews from the whole nation would be here in Jerusalem at this time, and this is when Jesus comes and shows up. And when he arrived... The gate was already prepared for his arrival. People were there with palm branches. Remember, Jesus had just raised a person from the dead. The people were at an all-time, an all-time high as far as his, their support for this man. Their support for this person that they wanted to make king. They wanted to set this, this man up as king, but not because they saw him as God. The people saw this man In a a similar sense then, in the Old Testament, when the people would take the, the Ark of the Covenant into battle, they felt they could not lose. If the Ark of the Covenant went before them, they could not lose the battle. So the people were trying to establish Jesus as a king so that they could go forth against the Romans because they couldn't lose with this man, a man who could do the things that this man could do. They could not lose. Their nation would be restored. The Romans would be defeated, and it would be at the hands of Jesus, their new Ark of the Covenant. But they also did not understand that it was, he was not an Ark of the Covenant. He was the bearer of a new covenant. A new covenant that had nothing to do with the nation and the Romans. He was the bringer of a new covenant that was to be had between the people and with God. And he himself would come and bring salvation to the people. Not against the Romans, but against the slavery of their sin. But the people didn't understand this. They didn't understand this. And these things are all carefully orchestrated by God to happen in detail. Jesus himself arrived on a donkey 
according to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And the Lord himself put Psalm 118 on their lips. In John chapter 12, we see in verse 13, let's start in verse 12. John 12, 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. But his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that were written about him and that they had done these things to him. But here we see the people. They had palm branches. They were waiting for Jesus to come and enter the gates of the city, into the holy city. They saw that this was Jesus' triumphal entry to take over Jerusalem, to take over control, to become the king. He was going to set himself up as the king of the nation and restore the glory of the nation. So they were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. We see this from an eyes of understanding who Jesus was as, yeah, Jesus is the King of Israel. He's the king, he's the, the spiritual king, the Prince of Peace, that kind of thing. But these people did not view him like that. These people saw him as the king who'd come to establish peace against other nations. To establish the glory of the nation. And they're quoting Psalm 118. And, we, and Rich read that earlier. If you want to go and look at that real quick. Psalm 118. In verse 25. They're quoting verse 25 here. In Psalm 118. It says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now is what Hosanna means. Save, save us, save us now. This is what the people were shouting to Jesus. And it is right for them to have thought of Psalm 118 because this is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm that David, he said, he stated this in his place in time, but it also meant something in the future. It was also prophetic of what it would be like when Jesus came, when the Messiah would come. That's what we mean by a messianic psalm. David is prophesying here of the coming Messiah. And in this psalm, chapter 118, this is a psalm of victory. This is a psalm of overcoming. David, in this psalm, he boldly is singing out his triumph over his enemies by the power of God. Verses, like, verses that say things like, In my anguish I cried to the Lord and he answered me by setting me free. Or the Lord is with me, he is my helper, I will look in triumph over my enemies. Or all the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. Or I will not die, but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. These are all victorious remarks that David is sending forth through the psalm that the people were supposed to sing in worship on a regular basis. They were supposed to sing this psalm of victory. And for centuries they've been singing this psalm, not knowing exactly what it was prophesying. 
And the people, and the people here, back in Jesus' day, as they stand in the gate of Jerusalem, they're, they're resounding David's triumphant call because they see Jesus as the new David, the seed that would be born to restore Israel, a king that will, by the hand of God, triumph over their enemies. But the people, in their excitement, did not see the prophecy. They, okay, so they saw the prophecy in verses 25 and verse 26, but they didn't go further far enough. They'd stopped there. They didn't go to verse 27. Verse 27 says, God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Another version puts it this way, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine on us. With bows in his hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. This is a call, a cry for the people, for this, for a coming to the temple, a rejoicing to come to the temple to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Like I said, this is a messianic psalm. And the people were excited to say, save now, I pray, O Lord. Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they don't see, verse 27 is also prophetic of what this salvation would look like. They want a salvation that comes by, the, by a sword and a shield. But here, with bows in hand, join the festal, festal procession up to the horns of the altar. And that the horns of the altar meaning they would tie the lamb to the horns of these, of the, of the, on, the, on the table where they would offer sacrifices. And there they would shred the body of that sacrifice. Pour out its blood. For the sins of the people. And here. This prophecy shows us. What's going to happen when the Lord sends salvation. When the Lord sends salvation. The bearer of the salvation is going to die. The bearer of the salvation is not going to kill the bearer of the salvation is going to be killed. He is going to triumph by going to the temple, sort of prophetically speaking, being tied to the horns of the altar and being shredded. The people didn't see this. They wanted him to bring a sword. But he's not going to bring triumph and sacrifice. He's going to bring sacrifice, triumph through sacrifice. And just as Abraham, when the Lord told Abraham, go make a sacrifice on a hill far away, Abraham did not bring a lamb. He brought no lamb. He was told to offer Isaac. And when he, got, and when he discussed this with his son, he said, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide a lamb. And there, in that moment when Abraham spoke thus, he spoke about this day that would come. This day when Jesus, the lamb that would be bound and slaughtered for the sins of the people, would bring the people freedom. The Lord provided a lamb. Jehovah Jireh. We like to talk about that in terms of providing physical needs. But when this is used... It's talking about the Lord providing a sacrifice.
provision in a means that we cannot provide for ourselves. We can go to work and make some money. We can go bring home the bacon. Some of us more literally speaking than others. But we cannot provide righteousness for ourselves. We can't do that. In the greatest sense possible, Jehovah Jireh is happening in Jesus Christ. He's providing the one thing that no man can provide for himself. Righteousness. Salvation from sin. And like I said, Jesus would not come to bring triumph and sacrifice like David did. David triumphed over his enemies and brought sacrifices into the temple. But that's not how Jesus would operate. He would bring triumph over sin through being the sacrifice. That's how he works. That's how it had to be. Hosanna, save Lord, was the cry of the people, desperate for salvation, but, but these people were not exactly ready for the type of salvation that Jesus would bring or not bring. They were ready to cry out blessing to him while they anticipated the arrival of their own version of good. But few of these people, I suspect, kept such blessing on their lips while he hung there on the cross bleeding out. That's not how this was supposed to play. Rather, instead of saying, save Lord, these people would come to quickly say, this man can't even save himself. He can't even save himself. If you're God, come down and save yourself. But he could, to them, he couldn't even do that. How are they supposed to save them? How are they supposed to bring them deliverance? He can't even bring himself deliverance. They had no idea what they were talking about. Their kingly understanding of him would quickly turn into disappointment over his miserable weakness and inability to deliver them in the way they anticipated, according to how they saw it. Even his own disciples, if you look back in John chapter 12, in verse 16, it says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, so this is after it's all taken place, after he's already died and rose again, after Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. But right now, when this is happening, the disciples themselves had no idea what was going on, let alone the nation. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were talking about when they said, Hosanna. In their haste to be delivered from the Romans, they didn't discern that the Messiah would come to die. But still, it is still said in verse 19 of chapter 12, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Yet the whole world was coming after Jesus. But they didn't know what they were going after. They had this perception of what they were going after, but they didn't really know what it was that they were going after. They were following after Jesus, but they didn't know what exactly he was there to do. They thought they knew, but they didn't know. The whole world was going after him, but the whole world was going after him according to a deception. You know, we like to hear, everybody's following Jesus. Everybody in my church is following Jesus. But do we know exactly who it is we're following? Are we following a, de a deceived understanding of who Jesus is? What he came to do? Do we really know who it is that he is and why he's here and why we're supposed to follow him? Do we even know? We know we're supposed to go to church, but do we know why? Do we know why 
were supposed to follow Jesus. These, the whole world was following after Jesus. But the whole world was damned. The whole world was deceived. They didn't know why they were following him. They thought they knew, but they didn't know. And is it not just like us all to flock to what, thinks, what, the, what we think is a good deal? The Jews were. They thought Jesus was a good deal. He can't, he can't lose. He has the power over life, life and death itself. How can he lose? We saw him feed 5,000 people, more than 5,000 people from some loaves and fishes. He can give us everything that we need. Raise people from the dead. Done. Let's follow that guy. He's a good deal. We're not going to lose out on that deal. You know, we have Good Friday coming up. But do the flocks of people worshiping Christ on Good Friday compared to the flocks of people worshiping commerce on Black Friday? We want to go get a good deal. But most of us, a good deal on a TV is more worth going after than Jesus Christ. Because we don't really know what, what's in that package. We don't know what Jesus is all about. And we've heard the story, but that doesn't sound enticing. Do you think that people would be excited or disappointed if they showed up to Best Buy on Black Friday only to find out that Best Buy made a mistake in their memo and scheduled a Good Friday service instead? Do you think the people would be excited or disappointed in that? Disappointed. I want a TV! I don't want worship! I want a video game system! I don't want Jesus. Jesus is for Sundays. TV's for every day. <laughs> I don't want that. People like their tangible stuff. We like our, okay, so let's bring it back to deliverance. We like our physical deliverance. Once the people saw that Christ had no intention of doing anything long-term about their physical needs, they turned their allegiance away from him. Yeah, he had been serving their needs. But now that he died on the cross, well, he's not going to serve their physical needs anymore. They could not see that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he was bringing a salvation to them that was far more important than any other deliverance they could anticipate. You know, addicts, they want deliverance from their addiction. Alcoholics want deliverance from their alcohol. People who are in debt want deliverance from their creditors. The miserable want deliverance from their misery. But Christ did not come to give his utmost attention to these things that pertain to a life that will pass. <coughs> Not that he does not care about those things or will address those things when you seek him. That is not at all what I'm trying to say. But none of these things will matter if we miss the thing that Jesus came to give his utmost attention to. Those things matter, but one thing matters the most. One thing is the prerequisite to all that follows. He came to give his utmost attention to our deliverance from our slavery to sin, from our slavery to death, from our slavery to the devil. And from this freedom, we will find freedom from all other things. But our freedom must start with these. And we're going to dig into a little bit more of these in the afternoon service. But do you know the Jesus that you are shouting praise to? Why are you shouting praise to him? Hmm? Is it just because that's what you do? Because you're a Christian? 
Is that what you do because it's Sunday? Is that what you do because that's, that's what people do when they come from a family like yours? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. I love the way that this is worded. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must he must go. You need to understand this. Jesus did not have to go, but he must go. It is not that we wooed him. He's not compelled by you and me. He's compelled by his love for you and me. He's not compelled by your loveliness. He's compelled by his love. For us. We think that we must, we must summon Jesus to come to us through extravagant sacrifice. But remember the disposition of Christ. It was his desire to come to you to be a ransom for your soul. It was his desire. And it is enough that he is compelled by his great love for you to initiate his entry into this world into Jerusalem so that he could go be bound and be slaughtered on the cross. And it is enough that his own love compels him to enter into your scene today. It's not enough that you try to compel him. That's not enough. You can't do enough to try to compel God. The God who created the stars in the sky. Everything that you see on this little planet, let alone all the things that are on the infinite number of other planets that God has created. You can't do enough to compel that God to come look at you, to give you his attention. But it is enough that Jesus is compelled by his own love for you to initiate this sacrifice. He didn't do it because he saw your humility, the humility of the people, he didn't do it because he saw your prayers or your sacrifice. He did it because of his own humility, his own desire, and his own self-emptying. You know, we think our prayer was effectual because we felt humble when we prayed that time. But it's not your humility that makes God do something. God's love for you compels him to serve you. His love for you compels him to enter into your scene, to save you, to transform you. And if our faith is in anything else, then our faith is wrong. We seek a Christ that we don't really know exactly what we're seeking. We don't really know. We're putting our faith in this version of Jesus that we've set up in our brains we're putting our faith in that Jesus, but that's not the real Jesus. We're putting our faith in something that's man-made. We turn him into an idol. We like to talk about other religions that set up all these different things that we call idols. But we, perhaps we, ourselves, 
have been praying to an idol this whole time. A Jesus that is fitting to our cause. Just like the Jesus that the Jews were hoping for, they were hoping for a Jesus that was fitting to their cause, a Messiah that fit their cause. Are we seeking Jesus that's simply fitting to our cause? If so, then we suffer from more idolatry than somebody else that we might take pleasure in condemning for their idolatry. We've been wasting our years seeking a Jesus that we've set up in our own image, an image that is pleasing to our eyes. All the while, the real Jesus is right here. Right here. Right in front of our face. And he's the one that said that he must go and suffer and die and be raised so that he can bring you victory. So that he can bring you salvation. Not so that you can get it, but so that he can get it for you. So that he can bring it down to you. Okay, he didn't owe it to you. He didn't owe it to you. You didn't do anything that deserved it. He owed you nothing. But in his great love, the self-compelling love, because God is love, he poured out himself for you. Performed an immeasurable sacrifice, an incomparable deed. Not because he had to, but because his love compelled him. When he said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, he wasn't saying, I must go because, man, these people are just, they've, all these sacrifices, I just, I would feel guilty if I didn't. That's not why. He must go because he loves you. He must have done this because he loves you. And if he loves you that much, don't you think he's going to enter into your scene? If he's going to serve you, by emptying himself of his glory, don't you think he's going to come into your scene to love on you, to save you, to transform you, to set you free? And he's, a free he's a freedom God. He's a freedom-bringing God. Not over the Romans. What are you seeking freedom from? Okay? What are you seeking freedom from? Something that will pass eventually anyway. Not that we shouldn't seek freedom from addictions and things like that. But what's your priority? What's the thing that obsesses you? God, send me, set me free. What is it that you pray? God, set me free. My sin, my sin. God, forgive me a sinner as you pound your chest. Set me free and bring me into your glorious kingdom. Did he not say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things, saying all the things that you need will be added unto you? That's what Jesus himself said. Seek first the kingdom, the kingdom of God, not your kingdom, not for your kingdom to be neat and tidy. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and he will deal with your kingdom. But we spend most of our energy, most of our life, most of our attention, most of our prayers talking about our little kingdom, a little kingdom that God already promised that he'd take care of, if you will just seek his kingdom first. First. All these other things will be added unto you. 
Jesus did not come primarily to set you free from the things in life that you want to be set free from. Primarily, his utmost attention came to set you free. This is why he entered into the gates of Jerusalem. The people shouted, save us, save us. What is it that you want to be saved from? Consequences? What is it that you want to be saved from? What kind of Jesus are you looking to? Save us, save us. Oh, save me, Lord. Reconcile me to your beautiful son. Bring me into your kingdom that I may worship you. Not so that I may be satisfied with the way my life turns out. No, so that I may be satisfied in Christ and his righteousness that he brought to me, not that I established for myself. That I may be satisfied in only the eyes of Jesus. Not me, myself, and I. Why do you seek Jesus? Why? These people sought him wrongly. Yeah, the whole world came to him. We love that. We love to say that. The whole town of Waverly is seeking Jesus. All the while, we still are tied to hell. Because we're not seeking Jesus, the right Jesus. We're seeking our expectation through Jesus. But are you seeking Jesus just because of Jesus? And what he himself brought, his agenda, his utmost. Or are you telling God to have your utmost, my utmost, and to accomplish my utmost? Jesus came riding into town to save the people, to be a sacrifice. Is that enough for you? Is that satisfactory? Or does that sound boring? I've heard it all before. Lame. Bring me Black Friday. Not Good Friday. Who's Jesus and what's he for? To you. That's something that you must think on. That you must meditate on this week. For life. (laughs) We are easily led astray, are we not? Well, let's seek the real Jesus for the reason that he came, not for the reason that we wish he came. Lord, I thank you for these people. Thank you for your son. Thank you, Lord, that you must come and save me, to die for me, to be bound to the horns of the altar so that you may be ripped apart. Which in and of itself is not good, for a Friday. But it is the way that you brought us salvation. And for that, we are thankful for your goodness, for your deliverance, because it was pleasing to you to crush your son so that many may be brought into your kingdom. Or may we be satisfied in this and let you take care of all the other things. But let us dwell and be satisfied in this alone that Jesus came to save sinners. While we were still sinning, Jesus came to save us. Not because we established our own righteousness, but because while we were sinning, Christ came and died for us. May we be satisfied in this. Give us the satisfaction that we find only in Jesus and not in the things that we wish Jesus would do. Give us a satisfaction and a contentment for the things that he did do and came to do to fulfill. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, We're not going to close with a song, but we're going to have a meal um, after we pray.
I hope you stick around for that. Um, Brother Kirk, could you be able to close us in prayer, please?